Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. I know a lot of people have heard of performing uh, performance-enhancing steroids. We've heard about blood doping. But I want to know what kind of performance-enhancing a merman smile is for a competing athlete. Maria Lewis, welcome to the epilogue of It Came From The Deep. Holy shit. We're done, baby! <laughs> We're fucking finished, cunts. Hells yeah. That's it. Epilogue and then epibye. Oh my God. I can't believe we're here. Epilogging wow. off. Okay. See ya. We're out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, mate, we made it. You know what I didn't realize? And this is me just, you know, maybe have been excited in the, the previous readings I've done of this book, but I I had in my head, it, it happens in like misremembering things. I had in my head, I'm like, how's she going to fucking explain in this podcast to me? why Amos is at this beach on the Gold Coast. I'd just completely forgotten in that great line that you wrote about, like, after the turmoil of, you know, uh, the previous race, they went to a little bit farther north into North Queensland, protected by the Great Barrier Reef. And I'm like, ah, oh, there it is. There's the line that I had not remembered. There we go. Nothing gets past me except for lots of stuff. Um, <laughs> but in this particular instance, I, yes, he was always, like, I needed to for it to be somewhere that was geographically close to the Great Barrier Reef where his family are theorized to be from. Spoilers there. Um, but also the location of the beach that they're competing at for that particular event, Emu Park, is where I had state titles when I was ooh, under 14s, maybe under 15s when I competed and the state titles there, we had to go up to Emu Park to race. And it fucking sucked because it was no ways, no ways suck. No ways suck. It was, right? it's, it's just not, it's not just the no waves thing, right? Cause no waves. Yes. That's shit. Because there's nothing exciting going to happen in a race. You know what I mean? You can't drag, like you're not going to get wiped out, like none of that stuff, but it was so hot outside of the water it was so hot physically in the water like hotter than you could possibly imagine as hot as your hot bathtub so sickening stuff and then you get out of the water and you can't even cool down because it's hot outside but we also had to wear stinger suits head to toe which is essentially just skin tight lycra that covers our faces and all of our extremities and so it was just like it was suffocating experience to compete in and I was like that would make a dope final scene. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we've spent all this time in this like beautiful tropical location with like surf and waves and wind. And we're like, let's just like really go tropo, go full tropo, <laughs> make it emu park, make it hot, make it gross. And, um, and also tie in that little link to that being where he's from. Although it's not explicitly said in the book that he finds his family his physical pre presence there alludes to the fact that he finds his family, which yeah. I like. 
very much. You know, sometimes yeah. you don't have to be. And then he found, like, I always think of the end of the Harry oh Potter God. books as what I don't want to do. And then he <laughs> jumped down the train and then he saw him and his name was his. And then we thought that was great. And then this person, I'm like, okay, well, okay. I, I don't, you don't I, need I, to wrap up every single thread. It's I, sometimes just enough to tell people that that the possibility of conclusion is there. You don't need to have Amos in like a paunch and a fucking wig to run Weasley it up is what I'm saying. Look, I think what drives me absolutely fucking insane in cinema is when there's a scene where they say something where a 10 times more powerful scene is in the wings for them to just convey their emotion that is happening inside them. And really great actors can do that. You know, sometimes it's about exposition and, and telling the audience what they want to hear, but literally nothing would have made me more mad than like, and as she could see, he was with his family in the water. Like it's like, he I, was I, a man, but he was I also a mermaid. Some would say he was a man. I'm not going to say what it was. I'm not going to say what it was, but I recently was listening to someone analyze a text that's as broad as I can be on a podcast in the podcast medium. And they were like crying out for something to be more obvious. And I, I had to skip as Jason Concepcion loves to say, cause we love referencing him and binge mode and that incredible show. Love him, um, love him so much. This person was the toughest fucking hang I've ever heard on a podcast. I had to skip past because I was like, I just can't. I can't hear you tell me that someone needs to go, at the end of it came from the deep. From the deep, we saw mermaids all together and merman and we knew that Amos was okay. And it really did come from the deep. And Amos's mum, Terry, was also there. And his dad, (laughs) Wilfred. It's just like, fuck off. Like, I don't need that. And I think it's just the perfect right amount of stuff. And like, a, and um, can I just like, say two th- quick things there in yes. the parlance of NBA desktop, you either oh. favorite or you block it. So you block that. Love block it. That. Number two about, I know it's just like a throwaway line about Terry and Wilfred, but if anybody has listened, you've got, if you're listening to this, you've gotten pretty fucking far in the show. So you know how much I'm incorporating real marine biology into the actual fantastical biology of these creatures and a lot of fish species are not gendered they it's it's like the um the frogs in jurassic park like nature finds a way it's not just seahorses it's like genuinely hundreds potentially thousands of different types of marine animal that are not gendered and their gender adapts to what is needed in the situation like oh shit we've got 10 you know, clownfish and they're all dudes and we need to switch it up. So we need, somebody needs to get fucked here. We need to create (laughs) little Nemo's. We need to find them. And then some, they'll just like draw little fish straws and then five of them will be gals. And then there you go. So the idea of like a gender binary and fish world doesn't exist. And that is something that is extremely true in this Supernatural Sisters world as well. If you have read The Other World Sister, the Rose Daughter, some of these other stories where these characters pop up and recur. Yeah, I, I I was trying to think of because you really nailed it with like who's who's afraid, who's afraid to TWO, and then who's still afraid. And I was just like, so what are the sequel names? Like, even if we were just fucking around, like what would the sequel names be from It Came From the Deep? And I was like, the one I landed on was They Came From the Deep. Like mm. as in 
a plural, like a kind of semi-plural mm. on the very like ungendered and completely, you know, it, like something that we don't mm. know what it is. But like the only other one in the style of your sort of series is like they came from the deep because then it's like, oh, that's the kind of only other thing that I could think of. It came from the balls deep. Like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it is. It wait, is wait, wait. D- stop, stop. Please. I know that you Tumblr fans are out there, right? Come on. Please point no, me in, point me can't. in the direction of the dark no. fan fiction of this series. Tumblr please. banned all the fun porn. Oh, god damn I it. I know. I know that's why I got rid of all my Tumblrs. All the like fun dark holes of Tumblr hat. Um, it just <laughs> they did they got disappeared many whiles ago and it's just not as fun. You go on Tumblr and you're not going to see like just a random ass and it's just not the same. And also like in an artistic way as well, like some of the best. Yeah, arts, artistic. Were, well, you uh, think, I, I always think of artistic dick pics where an art curator analyzes the uh, portrayals of dicks as represented in dick pics that are sent to her. Amazing. Like shit like that. There are so many versions and things like, um, what was the, the there was like a, uh, post post secret that post it secret or secret post it whatever the fuck that was called where people would send secrets in the post and they would get posted on Tumblr and a lot of times they were sexual or sad or could be like suicidal idolation like really heavy shit and really personal stuff and obviously like all that kind of shit gets taken down as well and you're like oh man they took all the all the point out of Tumblr. Like that was where all the little scene goth dark kids who were like made cool shit went. The your Chris <laughs> Flemings, your boy Chris oh, Fleming about how Chris norms Fleming. are now making creative stuff as well. That's kind of what Tumblr one of the feels greatest, like. One of the greatest videos of all time on the internet, that video. One of the greatest. DePiglio. <laughs> well, DePiglio is great, but that most recent <laughs> song, Chris Fleming, if, you, if you're not a fan of Chris Fleming, you need to be. And I think if you listen to this show, you would be um it's just so he's, he's just such a wonderful musical improvisational weirdo, weirdo. he's outstanding yeah. amazing he has um this song that i well there's uh, my two favorite clip chris filling bits but just like while we're here we've got one episode to go so let's just fucking go into a chris fleming bit but he has this um, this whole section of a stand-up routine he did about how at the end of Benny and the Jets, Elton John sings as if he's been trapped there by a malevolent satanic force and he can't <laughs> escape the song. And it's amazing. And, like, you need to look this up. I'll put some links into it in the thread, uh, in the Twitter thread for this episode. So there's that bit. The DePiglia obviously is amazing. But amazing. there's another one called Widely Unlikable Guy about <laughs> he is just a wildly unlikable guy you're fine you're fine you're fine <laughs> basically about how sometimes you'll be in a conversation you're like fuck what's wrong with me i can't get the vibes going and it actually turns out the person you're in <laughs> conversation with just fucking sucks and it's not you it's them it's it is and not you it's them it's the best it's not you it's them song of all he time. describes them as a pt cruiser come to life and just nothing is just like, oh my god, that's poetry right there. That's beautiful. That's artistry. I've got to slip in a Depiglio I, I, reference I in actually, the last book. I really do need to. You do, and I actually loved. I, I love send, sending you like a fake headline today on Twitter in a DM. This is going into a DM. Just the headline was heartbreaking. The worst person you know just made a great point, and it's just like one of those things where you just you know it's oh, it, it's it's, it's I hate it. One of those minor heartbreaks that happens. Sometimes people we know from film Twitter who we both either had mutually muted or blocked 
will resurface in a screen cap that somebody else has taken. And you're just like, oh, fuck off out of here. <laughs> like nothing is worse than that feeling. You know, you're just like, God damn it. And that's a good point. I hate di- this person. Yeah. But also, you know, you sometimes just have to suck it up and be like, okay, I'm moving on. I'm going back to Chris Fleming. I'm going to watch something else. I'm going to scroll <laughs> through my timeline. So, um, Shout out to my boy, Travis Tishop, who's still waiting on the sidelines, both literally and figuratively in this uh, moment, giving a little wink uh, to Kaya. Um, it's, he's just never going to be able to swim super fast, jump out of the water, have a tail, be totally ripped and have a sweet beard and long hair. Have a sweet beard. And long hair. <laughs> Look, just because it's not his time right now doesn't mean that it won't be their time in the future. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, Might sure. be Cabby's time in the future. You don't know. Oh, Cabby. Oh. Yeah, no, it's probably not. Cabby's, Cabby seems like she's just going to slay forever. I'm going to slay forever. So why an epilogue? It needed it. Also, I feel like if you start with a prologue, you need an epilogue. That's, I, there's no rules to that. It's not actually true. It's just how I feel. <laughs> it's just a rule that I made up for no, myself. Because, because I'm not at home right now and I don't have all my books of your, my copies of your books rather on my shelf next to me um, as I'm recording this podcast. Does every one of your books have a prologue and an epilogue? Nah, only when it's necessary, to be honest. Like I, again, this is the thing. Like I don't want to make up blanket rules for storytelling because I think oftentimes the story that you're telling and the characters (laughs) themselves they dictate the form rather than the other way around and I think that's the way it should be uh for sure like I have a book for instance where I it's a it's a 70s crime thriller let's just call it that that's probably the best way to describe it and I set a chapter in the past, a chapter in the present. And it's a manuscript I haven't sent to anyone. I just like, I did all this research for and interviewed a bunch of people at the FBI and wrote this draft. And I just truly haven't had a physical moment to go back and reread this manuscript and like tidy it up and get it off to my agent. Other books that I've written and have sent out for query, I have been able to do that. But this one in particular, it's a fucking beast. It's like 110, 120,000 words. So it's like, fuck it. I'll get to it when I get to it. There's other stuff that pays my bills that was more pressing that I had to do first. But that particular story, the past was relevant to the present and vice versa. And it was a really great tester essentially for what would go on to become the format for the rose daughter which Mm -hmm. is my next book that comes out in april and it is set a chapter in the past and a chapter in the present and that worked even better in that case because the main character is somebody who's 140 plus years old so they get to traverse through time through in their head and take the audience with them on their journey there's a rom-com that i wrote that tells a chapter in the male's perspective and a chapter in the female's perspective. I haven't sold that book yet. It's out being queried by people. Fucking hopefully somebody buys it, but if they don't, <laughs> oh, well, because that ended up again, being a really great sort of test case for me, working out the functionality of how to make a book work. If you're doing a chapter in dual perspective like that, that's what the wailing woman became. We had a chapter in Sadie's perspective and a chapter in Texas perspective. Tejas Contos. 
Tay. <laughs> you say it like the father of two small children who are obsessed with Dora the Explorer. Tay <laughs> And a little troll who lives under the bridge. Ah, uh, that's for all the door heads out there. Don't steal my fucking favorite impressions, okay? It's literally my favorite impression. That's the only one I oh besides it's the map, it's the map, it's the map, it's the map. It's you should be, the map. You should anyway. be thank you should be thankful that they are the only impressions you have. <laughs> This is why I'm never having children. I can't handle it. Um, if the show isn't bluey levels of quality good or the Tangled TV series, I don't want it in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I had those examples, right? I had those those books break the format. The Witch Who Courted Death is a book that is in third person. It Came From the Deep is in third person. But Who's Afraid, Who's Afraid too, and Who's Still Afraid are in first person with two chapters per book consistently in third person that is the format of those stories and you know in hindsight I always talk about how I was like fuck I really wish I wrote who's afraid in third person like I just that's one of my like I guess big regrets is, but now is, is there a midnight sun rewrite of who's afraid in no, the third person coming your that. way no never never like <laughs> that is not one of I my pre- that is not one of my pre-prepared questions but I just wonder I just know sometimes no. where it's like no. is it an itch no. that is that is, no. is that desperate to scratch no Never. No, the reason is because no. I can put <laughs> literally the reason why I had. I like, mean, that I is my back... text message tone for you. No. 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 <laughs> the reason why I, and I don't regret it anymore. I'm, what I'm saying is I don't regret having written Who's Afraid in First Person anymore. I don't it think it's a, a period... regrettable, I don't think it's a regrettable book, nor is it a regrettable style for the character. I think it works completely. In well, Exactly. Now in hindsight, it's perfect because it's the first book in an eight book series. And because you're in Tommy's head and it's all I, 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 me, 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 it really pulls you in, in a way that that character, perhaps more than any others is really difficult. She is an antagonist in many respects. She's prickly. She's complicated. She starts off as a villain essentially like it's so weird to tell a story from almost a villain's perspective and have them evolve and shift and go on this journey where they have to realize and acknowledge they're not a fully formed person and their journey they don't just get to start it out as like this perfectly shaped piece of clay they get redefined and reshaped as they go on that journey and so do the supporting characters characters that are you know, friends or heroes early on become villains, characters that you think are going to be main characters die, all that shit, right? So it works now in hindsight, but at the time, one of the reasons I wanted to write it in third person and Midnight Sun, by the way, from memory, and I'm just pulling this off the top of my head, but is not in third person. It's in first person, except the first person is Edward. So it's not even like- I I, I just meant like, uh, I was using Midnight Sun more as a reference of like, retreading the ground that feels like it's already tread, but just shifting the perspective is, is I guess where I was going with that. Well, that's why third person is like alluring because you can show bigger scope. And in a way, what's interesting is with who's afraid I was intentionally trying to keep the scope quite small because everything is new to the reader. Everything about that world, the characters, the names, the conventions, the rules, the Trez, the Praetorian Guard, the Ascari, the Custodians, all of it's new, her powers. And so you're trying to keep a really like singular, minute focus. Now, by the time it gets to, it came from the deep and the witch who caught a death specifically, which are the first two books in that series that open up 
to a full novel in third person rather than just breakout chapters, the groundwork is there and mm-hmm. the readers are along with you for the ride. Or they're not, because if they're not, they're not reading the fucking book. So it doesn't matter what you do. But <laughs> okay. if they've made it to book three or four, they're there. And so you can you can start to just like, it's like looking through a tiny little peephole and then it suddenly gets bigger. And like, if you're making a peephole with your hands and then you're slowly opening your fist and making or, it Or if bigger, you're looking through bigger. a peephole right now, if you're if anyone any people listeners right now just staring through a people as they're listening to the show just stare through to that our people. huge audience base of people listeners um <laughs> love this for you good love to see it in a small love to form see it. but by the time you then get to the wailing woman you can do a book where it's dual perspectives by the time you get to um the rose daughter you can do a book that's past present you know you can really fuck around with the format because the story dictates it, but also the readers that are there trust you and you've earned it. When it gets to the final book in the series, which I have a title for now, but I can't tell it yet. Uh, I know it's really what? Can you tell me off air or can you say it? Oh no, please. Can you please and say it, it? And, and I'll bleep it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go. All right. Oh my God. So it's just so natural <laughs> and fully formed. But again, sometimes the title can get changed. Uh, the publisher might suggest an alternate title or they might suggest like a reshifting of words. But that to me feels really right for the particular story. And it's been honestly quite rare that the title has ever changed from something that I've suggested um, on that first go. But I never really write books knowing, like actually it has never, ever happened. I've never written a book knowing what the title is first. Usually I have to write the book and by the time I get to the end, the title has just like, sort of like simmered to the top of the pile. It just like presents itself. Um, and it just feels very natural and right in the same way that this title feels natural and right. But point is with this book, uh, the final book, because you have done that groundwork and you have introduced those characters over eight books and the short stories and the world and the art that people have done and the things they have connected with and interpreted I can tell a story from multiple perspectives through multiple women um, across multiple time periods, which sounds super daunting, but it's like you've stretched your limbs and you've stretched the audience's limbs. So that is the longest answer in the history of the universe as to why I had a prologue and an epilogue. Who's Afraid has a prologue. We mentioned in episode two, I believe it might be in episode one actually about why that was. And it was essentially that I started, it might've been back on the very first episode that we did for this. It came from the deep podcast prologue where I mentioned why who's afraid had a prologue, why that was necessary because originally the action started just like Tommy fucking around with her friends and you have no investment. And to be honest, it's kind of boring. It didn't really get to any of the action until chapter four and it came from the deep I would argue is maybe a little bit different it's like even if you got rid of the prologue it is quite fast moving there's action happening um by the end of of chapter one in memory even if it doesn't happen in actual present until chapter four but a prologue is a really great way to set the tone and set the pace early and it's usually not the full length of a chapter it's something that you're like hey, FYI, probs need to know this, but like, just so you know. And then it's the same with the epilogue. It's like, hey, psst, um, just like R-T-Y-I, um, 
you might enjoy this, you know, but <laughs> hypothetically you should be able to, if the book ended on chapter one and chapter 13 or whatever, then sick, the reader doesn't lose anything, but the prologue and epilogue, epilogue is like a kind of like a little, it's like a trailer and an after credit sequence almost in a way. And that's what it was supposed to serve in this case. I wanted it to feel the readers specifically to feel like we were at a logical conclusion, not to say that these characters won't go on to have other adventures or that their lives have finished or that they're all fucking 40 at platform nine and three quarters, (laughs) Harry Potter. (laughs) But I wanted to tie up the loose ends that were logical to tie up while still leaving some kind of hopeful open conclusion that people could interpret if they never read any more of my books sick fine cool thank you for buying this one and connecting with it but they still get a full story and if they do continue the the things that they get to continue with feel like a logical natural progression if that makes sense Totally. First a bullshit question, then a real question. Bullshit question is... <laughs> I um, love the bullshit question. Bullshit question. In Rose Daughter, have you ever thought of Dan Browning it and just like carving every chapter up into five and having really short chapters so that people feel super smart when they read <laughs> a chapter and it's like a page and a half? No disrespect to Dan Brown. He's not the only person who does that. And I would be very interested to know the reason me like, too. I don't. I, I actually asked you that bullshit question, and I genuinely don't know because I actually read a book um, uh, last month called Zeroville, which is a sort of weird. Um, it's a it's a sort of like weird loner. Um, it is a third. Sounds person. terrible. <laughs> it's like a weird loner in 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 the peak of like New Hollywood, who goes to Hollywood, who's like a huge film fan. His favorite film is A Place in the Sun, which um, stars Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth. Um, uh, Elizabeth Taylor and he has them tattooed on his head and he ends up breaking into the film industry. It's a very weird and sprawling book, but it goes through a whole bunch of like side characters. You meet people like John Milius and, and, uh, and, you know, if you're a film geek, you kind of will get something out of it, but there's like parts of that book where it like the chapter conventions are all weird. And like, it, 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 it doesn't feel like a normal, I don't know. You even know what a, like a normal size chapter is, but like, it doesn't feel like a normal size chapter. It like goes for a few pages and then it happens and you're like, this kind of feels really weird and fast and I don't know why he was doing mm. it. And in the perp in, in some instances, cause I was like just binging this book. It was very, very um, consumable. It was a, a, a kind of unput downable for me. Um, I was like, I don't know why he's doing short chapters because it, the writing seems to be enough. You know, it's, it's that, I'm, I'm sorry. It's hard for me to articulate. Yeah. So I had heard that Dan Brown thing that you've, that you said, because it was like, so people would feel smart by reading short chapters like oh sick I've smashed xyz chapters and I heard that when it was going around in the same way that it was like it's always popular to hate a thing that's popular like that becomes like a cool trendy joke like the Dan Dan Brown Da Vinci Code it's a fucking cracking yarn Dan, it's a yeah, good yeah. story the Ron angels Howard and adaptation's Angel, good Angels and Demons is a banger too as a book and as and the others yeah. never really quite resonated nearly as hard but they're enjoyable reads and just like, I, that's one of my big pet hates is people shitting on things because they come popular. But when I had heard that start to circulate about that's why he did the short chapters, I first of all, I didn't think that. It felt like a very specific publishing choice. Like that might've been, it might've been there in the original manuscript. It also 
felt very much to me like something an editor might suggest on the third or the fourth sweep just to be like listen this is quite dense historical shit not like shit and as in like oh that's shit as in just like stuff dense historical stuff stuff. therefore let's break it up I mean it kind of reminds me a little bit of the girl with the dragon tattoo novels by Stig Larsson the absolute mad dog totes legend may he rest in peace um, who just casually spent his entire life like hunting down Nazis and like training feminist armies of the jungle, like the definition of a sick cunt. But um, <laughs> his books were purposefully really dense and he never did the short chapter thing, but also he came from a background of writing long form investigative features. That's why they felt like that because in a way that's what he was writing, you know? Yeah. So in it's the best possible way, and they talk about the film adaptions too, but Cyglarson is a filing cabinet writer. Like you fall into his filing cabinet and you can, you're just like going through the way that he densely writes these incredible lengthy stories. Yeah, that wouldn't be my description, but I understand what you're saying. Um, and with the Dan Brown thing on the short chapters, again, like it it really truly depends on what the intention was with that book and what they were trying to prove. And even same with Zeroville, like it sounds like a little bit discombobulating, bobulating, you know what I'm trying to say, but that also sounds like the intent of what the storyteller was trying to do. In my case, I just want to make it as easy as possible for people to fall into the story. So most of my chapters I try to keep them all roughly around the same length. Yeah. And usually that's around the 5,000 word mark for me. Now, if it's like 4,000 or 6,000, I don't fucking sweat it. If it's seven, I'm like, oh, they're trying it in. Um, but, <laughs> or like, is there a, a place that I can split a chapter? You know what I mean? Like yeah. if it's getting- Is there a, a logical long, split? Exactly. Or is there something dead that needs to go? Is there a huge chunk at the beginning, the middle, the end of this chapter that can just like cut, 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 cut. I actually did a really big cut on the um, the sort of final pass before I delivered the manuscript to the publishers on the final book. There was a chunk where it was like, it was actually, it was a really hot sex scene. And I was like, oh, this can go. You know, like this doesn't build, like, what is this here for? Like, save just to have the, like a hot save moment. Save it for the group chat. <laughs> save it for the group chat. No, save it for the group chat. It was a cool scene, but I was just like, not relevant. Let it go, move along. And then I could have this chapter in tidier shape. So yeah. for me, I like each of the chapters to be around 5,000 words. The prologue and epilogue are always a wee bit shorter because that is how they are designed. You don't have to do that. That's just how, like, it's, pre and epi so I kind of want it to be like a little bit shorter so it's might be like three or two thousand words or whatever but I just want there to feel like there's flow that people move from chapter one to two to three to four and that it feels consistent the only time I break form with that is in The Witch Recorded Death when there is a chunk of time that passes, not in a Twilight New Moon way, although i I got to be honest, I fucking loved when she did that. I thought it was dope. <laughs> I remember reading those books at the time and it just goes like November, December. Like each page was literally just a month. And I was like, oh, that's fucking sick. Like I thought that was so cool. I was like, wow, that's interesting. What a great physical way to show you how that person yeah. is feeling and then in the movie that's still one of my favorite scenes from any of the twilight movies is they have the licky leap possibility song and the the slow cam panning around case do as the seasons change yeah yeah it's, uh, a good, it's a good shot 
there's a pass a bit you're like oh man she's so sad and so horny um <laughs> in the witch who caught a death there's a a gap from when casper survives the original incident that um ends up turning her uh, let, let me i was about to say something but if you haven't read the witch who caught a death i don't want to spoil it for you but let's just say there's a massive incident happens very early on in the book and then to show the passage of time there's literally just one page that's like six months later and you're like sick and then, you know, the next chapter, chapter four, I think it is, it goes from chapter three to four, there's a six month time difference. And it was just, that was sort of the only time it broke format, but everything else besides that, that has been what has worked for those stories. And that has been what the readers have responded to for that style of book. Now, if I'm writing a different kind of book, um, I'm writing a middle grade book, for instance, with a word count of smaller. Obviously, you decrease the chapter sizes depending on that. If I was like writing something experimental where I'm like, each chapter is five words and then one 6,000 words, you're like, wow, this is so arty. Must hand them a literary <laughs> prize or some shit. Um, that would be a different, a different thing. But in this case, for the types of stories I'm trying to tell and how I want the readers to feel like they're in safe hands in terms of not <laughs> the events. <laughs> Cause I wouldn't necessarily say I ever do things that people want in terms of like, you know, their favorite characters surviving or happy endings, but I just at least want them to feel like physically they're with somebody who knows what they're doing in terms of, you're not going to get a chapter that's a hundred words. And then the next one's 5,000, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it as easy for the reader to dive in as possible. Thank you for really thoughtfully answering my absolutely shithouse like uh, question because it, I told you was, I like your shithouse question. It was really insightful. The next one is you just before talked about you know prologues and epilogues being like a trailer and a, and 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 obviously like a cut scene, you know post credit scene, post credit stinger, whatever the hell they've evolved to be called in the last mm. you know since two thousand and eight since Iron Man and the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of made them the new parlance of how we experience things. Do you think that this epilogue sequence was the moment that people really firmly realized that this was in your Supernatural Sisters series? Or do you think it's much earlier? Because in my mind, this epilogue, in some ways, just hearing you talk about it and hearing us, you know, you know build up to it, it's like this is... Um, at the time, I totally thought this was just the perfect enough, like this is this was my icing on the cake, cherry on the ice cream, whatever you want to call it. This was like my perfect, you know, in, in my parlance, it's the gummy bears and Nutella in your cold rock ice cream. Like this is exactly what I want, <laughs> but I don't know. Don't, don't laugh at my, don't judge me. Don't judge me right now. I feel, I feel exposed. Um, but no, I just, I really wanted to know, like, do you feel like that this was a stinger? That this was part of your series or do you think that that's how it's kind of grown as the series has grown that's a wonderful question and it's actually something that i can't answer i think it's something that the people who are listening to this episode can answer and is something that they are probably the ones who have a better grasp of it in particular the ones who read the book when it first came out it yeah. came from the deep i've said this before has been a real grower not a shower like it did make a splash when it came out you know like it, it hit amazon bestseller charts which still just like absolutely blows my mind because i just think about like 
what a DIY effort it was. And I still want to reskin the book and put it out in like a fancy and nice and new edition for people. But I just like, I think about all of the, you know, the marketing that I did for it. And I'm used to marketing my own books myself and having to like, really like do that slog and organize launches and organize flights and accommodation and, you know, reach out to journalists and stuff. So that's not unusual for me, but it was the first time doing this. So you just don't know if it's going to work and if people are going to give a shit. And the fact that they did then, I was like, damn, that was worth it. And every time I kept expecting this story and the readership and the book to sort of like dip off, like books have these logical, like they spike at the start and then it slowly, like it slowly dips. Right. And the interest in that particular story dips and it, and it fades and it goes away. And then sometimes it might spike up again because it gets rediscovered by somebody or it gets adapted or there's a theme or a character or something that can resurge. Game of Thrones is an example that a lot of people use. Like those books were really successful before the show. They were never not successful. Insanely successful. Insanely successful. The level that they went to once the show came out and those books had already been around for over 10 years. You know what I mean? So this is what I'm saying about like, Books can have a really long tail on them. It's not in the same way that films can. Like I always think about Scott Pilgrim was called a flop within two days of release and is one of those movies that has truly endured and grown and cultivated. Not for you you and I. I think you and I were on Scott Pilgrim's dick from By the numbers, by the numbers, (laughs) it was a flop. Yeah. We were all about that. We wanted to L word, the other L word, um, we lesbianed that movie hard uh, from, from the from the jump. We were obsessed, right? From the jump but, out the window because we're not home because we're trying to escape Knife Chow. Yeah, uh, who's not here right now? I love Knife Chow. She should have been the main character. But <laughs> she is the main character. She is yeah. the main character. Yeah, it's not called Knife Chow versus the world, though, is it? You know. No. Anyway, that's that's a deeper <laughs> philosophical feminist discussion for another time. But. I don't think, at least uh, at least in, in my interpretation, I don't feel like the epilogue was the moment people clicked about it being part of the same universe, or at least that's not what I heard. I didn't hear that and didn't get that feedback. The place that I got it from explicitly was when The Witch Who Courted Death came out because it came from the deep and The Witch Who Courted Death came out in the same year. And that was great because like, just to have, I mean, it wasn't at the time I like fucking nearly had a mental breakdown in hindsight though. <laughs> in I was going to say, I gonna say I'm, your, I'm your mate. I remember there was a significant <laughs> amount of stress around those two. Oh releases. my God. Truly like so much stress. I looked so old. It's actually like, who's still afraid? And the Rose daughter <laughs> was both supposed to have come out in 2020 and the Rose daughter ended up getting pushed because of the pandemic in the UK. And I'm truly like, they're like, hey, so we've got some bad news. We're going to have to push it because of the pandemic. And I was like, honestly, fucking great. Wonderful. This is, this is actually great news for me. Please. This is, this is actually amazing news for me because it meant if that any- I could have one book out that year instead of two. Like, it's, if, any- it's if anyone's seen how vibrant and, 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 and beautiful Maria Lewis is uh, on all of her uh, social media and Instagram, just imagine the year that both the, um, 
the Witcher caught a death and it came from the deep, came out. She looked like the old woman about to drop the heart of the ocean off the edge of the boat in Titanic. Like she's it's like. It's been 84 years. It's been 84 years. That's what you look like at that time. And we did the around as the Witcher caught a death was dropping. We did. Oh, fuck. What was it? We did. I think I had just gotten back from New York and we did the writer's room for Who's Afraid all within like a very specific period of time. It was honestly just hectic. I remember like having a breakdown (laughs) at Broadway Shopping Center in Sydney, just having a massive sob out the front of the Woolworths because I was just like so stressed. It was like fully like two o'clock on a Sunday and I was just like sobbing my eyes out. Um, But anyway, that's all to say. It was super stressful at the time. But when The Witch You Caught a Death came out, quite close to It Came From The Deep having been released, The Witch You Caught a Death had a glossary for the first time. It was the first one of my novels that had a comprehensive glossary at the back of the book, which is something that I had been fighting for since my very first book, except the argument then from the editors was, well, we don't want to allude to the fact that there's other stuff in this world yet. We don't want to overwhelm people. And I was like, great, makes sense. Sure enough. And then the second book came out and I was like, can we put a glossary? And they're like, nah. And I was like, God damn it. And then the third book, I was trying to sort of like bury the lead, you know, like bury the pickle and the fact that it was part of the same universe. So you couldn't have a glossary. The Witcher Court of Death did though. And it was the first book that really put it on paper that all this shit's connected besides the fact that you literally had characters from all the stories coming in. But in the glossary, there is a definition of selkies and what that means. And they're referred to as creatures that are often called mermaids or mermen in traditional folklore and selkies, essentially saying that selkies and mermaid, merman folklore are all part of the same thing. They're the original shapeshifters. They can often be referred to as aquatic humanoids and that phrase is super specific Ah! it's super specific it was one that I came up with specifically for it came from the deep and it's a phrase that really connected readers of that book to the witch who caught a death because we have all those conversations where he's like I'm not a merman I'm an aquatic humanoid you know (laughs) shit like that and people had been making me fan art that had aquatic humanoid rights now on them and stuff like that so they were super familiar with that phrase and that was when I noticed not to saying it didn't happen before that but that was the first time that I really noticed people going OMFG aquatic humanoids does that mean yada fucking yada and I was like yeah baby and then it's (laughs) it's all it's all on it's all on as they say from there well as we find out that it's all on, it's all off. We're done. Or we is have, it? Or is it? It's all done. This the movie is over. Yeah, it's uh here we are. I was looking at the photos actually that I will put up on the Twitter thread for this final episode of links and stuff that you can look at. But I was checking out the photos of myself, Adam Boys, uh, who put all this thing together, and of course the wonderful Soph who did all of the reading and really took you into the world of all of the characters and specifically into the sound and voice of Kaya. Like that was one of my favorite things about her as an actress and how she was bringing that sort of life. But I was looking at the pictures of it and we were recording in this studio, like it was a film post-production facility in Redfern that had like a, like a 
we had repurposed it for audio purposes, if that makes sense. And um, we'd finished off the final epilogue of the book that night after, you know, long, 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 long period of time doing it. And then we went out to get ramen at this fancy new place around the corner that had just opened up. And it was that classic Sydney thing of like dickheads lining up because it's the new place. And then you you line up too, and then you have it. And you're like, was this worth it? <laughs> but I had to go back to the studio afterwards, after we'd had ramen and after we'd finished to interview Kevin Feige. And, um, and I'll never fucking forget it because it was just like the strangest place to do an interview like that, like in an empty, full-on urban legend, Tara <laughs> Reed Light Night radio host-esque studio where you're interviewing like the Marvel's big boss. And I remember it so clearly because I called, <laughs> I called someone that we mutually knew a sick cunt in the interview and just like didn't even register it at the time. I was like, oh yeah, so-and-so's a sick cunt. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And then I go on and I do the rest of the interview and whatever. And then it was the day after I was transcribing the interview and I was like, what the fuck did I just say? And I had to like <laughs> pause it, rewind it, go back and be like, oh my God, I describe somebody as a sick cunt in an interview with like the most powerful person in Hollywood right now. Like Jesus, it was so embarrassed. But then I obviously went back and listened to it like a few times. He hangs out with Aussies. Like all the stunties are Aussies. Like obviously Tyke is Kiwi. Well, Hemi is all ha- Aussie. Sam Hargrave, who directed Chris Hemsworth's Extraction, has been like the second unit action director for Marvel for years. And like yeah, Aussie, so Aussie he, I, I didn't even like, I freaked out that I'd said it. And then I went back and listened to it and he didn't even blink or flinch. He was just like, he knew what it meant straight away. I was like, oh, cool. We're good here. <laughs> it's fine. We're, we're fine. It's good. All good. But yeah, it's, it's just so, so, it was so random. I was just looking at those photos and remembering that night and just like chuckling to myself. And now here we are at the end, baby. And hey, thanks so much to, um, Everybody who's in the, especially in the last week, sent tweets um, after I read out Melissa's wonderful, like very yeah, sweet message. There was a lot of message. cool. There was a lot of cool fan messages coming through in the last week. Really nice. Yeah. Stuff. No, it was really lovely stuff. Thanks so much to everybody who's listened. It's it's been so nice to dive deep on this book, but also to specifically do it with you, Blake, because you what? come from it from a very oh, what? what you come from it. <laughs> you come to it from a very different place. And it's, yeah, it's really, really. <laughs> Which is hilarious right now because I'm literally under a doona as we're recording this. So when you're like, you're coming from it from a different place, from the ground. You literally in look room, like under a you're in the Blair Witch Project. No, but Please take a screenshot because... of this ASAP. No, I already got one from earlier, oh, don't oh, I? Good, good, good. <laughs> but um, the questions you ask always surprise me and are unexpected because they're not things that, I've been asked before, asked a thousand times before. And so I hope that means that it's something that people have enjoyed listening to as well. And, you know, you know, me, mate, I, I, I I don't want to ask you the things that I know because especially after living with you and after actually being to a lot of promo tours and being to book launches and stuff like that. um, And at every chance I get shitting on the person who's moderating it with you. Um, I just feel like <laughs> a lot of those people have been our friends. <laughs> I know, I know. That's, uh, that's why I'm happy to say. Um, but but I I genuinely um, I am genuinely one of the biggest fans of this book. 
and I'm a huge fan of you. And I think that for me, when I, this is a more like, I don't know whether it was the style, whether it was the content, whether it's the material, whether it's your personal connection to the place, but I genuinely think it's one of your best books and it's not even your most talented writing, which comes way later as far as I'm concerned, um, because you continue to get better and better, but I am genuinely such a, such a fan of this book. And, and I hoped that I was asking questions and trying to have a bit of a dialogue with you that kind of, um, I don't know that, that I wanted to hear the most. So um, if it's resonated at all, I hope it's because other people are huge fans of this, uh, this book as I am. Thank you. That's so nice to hear. And yeah, I fucking hope my writing's got better. Hey, like <laughs> truly that isn't that what you want? Like you want, I always like, I think we mentioned this again on an earlier episode about think when we were talking about Emerald Fennel's promising young woman as being just like one of the great cinematic debuts right I really want to hope my debut is my worst book and I really want to hope my second worst book is my second book and my third worst book is my third book sorry it came from the day and my fourth you know what I mean like I hope each book that I put out feels if not as good as what came before it better than and expanding like my range as a storyteller so you know, thanks so much to everybody who made this story a success fucking so many years ago. And if it wasn't for you guys, we literally wouldn't be here right now doing this podcast nearly four years after the fact. Wild. It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from bestselling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe and share with your mermaids.